Hi, and welcome to the Unlocking Customer Service Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Richmond. I'm here every week talking with guests who can help you realize the full potential of your contact center and customer service team to keep growing your business. Oh, and you can do all of that while still prioritizing your people. In fact, that's the secret to it all. Let's chat with our next guest. Hey, I'm here today with John Goodman of Customer Care Measurement and Consulting. John, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, great. Uh, I'm John Goodman, Vice Chairman of Customer Care Measurement and Consulting. And uh, we actually started out as an ad hoc student group about 40 years ago in the basement of Harvard Law School. Uh, I was at the business school. My partner was at the law school and we have yet to get real jobs. But our real claim to fame is that we, through the White House study we did in the 1970s, uh, really instigated the use of 800 numbers for customer service. Uh, We uh, helped set up the GEN. Answer Center, American Express, Toyota, Procter & Gamble, et cetera. And, and our other claim to fame is that we're the first people who have quantified word of mouth in terms of twice as many people hear about a bad experience as a good experience. And that was a study we did with Coca-Cola again in, in the uh, late 70s. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. This is It's great to have you. This is a, a depth of knowledge that uh, is, is good to have in what sometimes feels like a very uh, young industry, the contact center industry. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, how customer rage, customer delight, and employee frustration align to build a business case for investment in customer experience. Uh, so, John, it sounds like we have uh, a lot of uh, you've got a lot of anecdotes, stories, facts, studies that we can go through today. Um, so I guess let's just uh, uh, kick it off. We'll talk a little bit about um, what is our connection here between customer frustration and employee frustration, because it all starts there when a customer calls in and talks to an employee or uh, an agent or, you know, we have to we start the interaction somewhere. Okay, basically, uh, and this actually does go back to the original uh, White House study, which we've now replicated nine times since then, and we call it the National Rage Study. And it's basically what makes people so angry they start swearing at a company. And what we find is that the, the prevalence of problems has actually gone up significantly in the last 40 years, which is is no great surprise. Uh, Also, we have found that the thing that really drives people nuts more than anything else is is technology. But uh, we we now find that when the customer calls in, in many cases, when they're having a frustration, the employee is also having a frustration. Uh, Because when the customer calls in, the customer wants to accomplish something, and the service employee wants to successfully help that customer customer. But 50 to 70% of the barriers encountered by employees also impact the external customer. Uh, so, for instance, in one company, we found that the two biggest points of pain that customers had were difficulty in getting price quotes in a timely manner and stale information on the website. And when the employee was trying to help that customer, uh, they had the same difficulty in getting timely price quotes from the marketing department who wouldn't respond to their emails. And they were encountering the same stale information on the website. So, in fact, we found that there is about a 50 to 70% overlap between the problems that the customer has and the problems that the employee has. So really, it's, you know, when we when we call in and, and get someone who doesn't have the information they need, that's not, that's not a failing of them. It sounds like it's a failing of the system. They haven't been set up to be able to help people with what they need. 
Exactly. They haven't been given the tools. And, and this is a major problem we find in most companies. The assumption is if you have a dissatisfied customer, Mary Lou, that frontline employee must have done something wrong. But in most cases, Mary Lou is doing exactly what she was told to do with the tools she has. It's just that that response and that information isn't making the customer happy. That ain't her fault. That's management's fault. Mm hmm. So uh, let's we can start off. Uh, give us some some stories of of customer delight, uh, and how how does this turn into customer loyalty? Because uh, obviously, you know, we hear everyone's quick to talk about the 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 stuff they don't like, but uh, it's not very often we get to hear the good stuff. So give us some of the good stuff. Well, uh, and and basically, uh, the the whole concept of delight we think is is also a little bit dangerous because uh, Joe Pine, who wrote the original book on uh, customer experience, was talking about the Nordstrom story, which is this lady shows up at a Nordstrom's carrying two tires and says, "I bought these tires at this location. I want my money back." Well, the problem is Nordstrom has never sold tires, but the backstory is that there used to be a tire shop at that location. But the customer is always right. So they gave her her money back. Now, the problem with that is that while you're, you're dazzling the customer, finance people hear that story <clears throat> and say, that's ludicrous. So we, we think in some ways the Nordstrom story is actually doing damage because it, it's undermining the credibility of the whole customer experience uh, strategy with finance, who's really, really important in terms of getting the resources. So what we find is that there are what I call cheap delighters, where you're not spending a fortune or going through heroics, and you can still dazzle the customer. And, and uh, we've recently done a study that's going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks that we have found that enthusiasm, humor, uh, empathy, uh, and actually just taking the time to be honest and transparent with the customer and educating them on how to get the most out of the product, those types of behaviors actually create very significant amounts of delight. Now, when I delight you uh, and show that I've cared about you, we find uh, two or three critical levers in, in the overall uh, equation. The first is that we find that uh, willingness to repurchase goes up by about 9% in terms of top box loyalty. Additionally, we found that about 28% of people say, I would pay significantly more for this product or service. So you've uh, really created the ability to charge a premium for the product. And then in addition, there's word of mouth where we find that the delighted customer is going to go out and tell a bunch more people. And more recently in our research, we've started saying, how many people did you tell? And to your knowledge, how many actually took action on your recommendation? And what we're now finding is that at a minimum, about 20% of those people are taking action. So in addition to uh, increasing the revenue from that individual customer you've delighted, you're also generating a lot of positive word of mouth, which enhances your revenue, but at the same time reduces your marketing expense. For instance, the president of the Cheesecake Factory says that their marketing expense is about 25% that of their direct competitors. And when one asks why, he says, well, we're just letting our customers do our selling for us. So if you can get your word of mouth to be good enough, you can spend next to nothing on marketing and sales and still keep enhancing the revenue stream. 
So it sounds like there's quantifiable variables that don't cost anything that are that give you a return on investment, but your investment is nothing. So you're it's all in the plus. You're all in the positive. It's all gravy. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that that when I asked chief marketing officers, what percentage of your acquisitions come from word of mouth? I get blank stares in, in about half the time. They have no idea. They know word of mouth is important, but they've never really tried to measure it. And it's much easier to put another million dollars into advertising when in fact, uh, and this goes back to the White House study, we did an analysis at General Motors that found that it costs five times as much to get a new customer with advertising than to retain a customer through a good service system that solves problems. Is there any uh, correlation in, uh, I guess, the the size of the brand? Like, is it a smaller company or a bigger company? Is, does this effect work differently on on how many, I guess, how big of a company it is? Because you've, you've mentioned a, quite a few large names, but can small companies take away the same ideas? We've actually found that small companies uh, are more dependent on word of mouth because they don't have the ability to do the advertising in many cases. And it's your neighborhood restaurant that is the neighborhood gem, to use open tables terminology. And basically, they're surviving almost totally on word of mouth. So, so yes, word of mouth, if anything, works more importantly in a small business environment than in a large business environment. So it sounds like this is something that can be implemented by anybody. This isn't just a, this isn't something that you have to, you know, put a big think tank behind and get studies. It just sounds like uh, it works. It works for anybody if if you uh, see where you need to fill in that those holes of the misinformation there or the, the getting the right people, the right information. Yeah. And in fact, one of my staff was asked a while back, aren't you embarrassed to be selling common sense? And after thinking for a second, she said, you know, there still seems to be a market for it in some places. <laughs> so what would be on, on the other side? What is the cost to uh, managers, business leaders who don't understand this? What's what is the loss? We've seen the gains, but uh, there's got to be some losses if you don't have it together. Well, and one of the big things that we find is that uh, most organizations work on the assumption that no news is good news. But our, again, the, the White House study and then a thousand studies we've done since then have basically shown that the vast majority of customers who have problems don't bother complaining. So no news is not good news because they're going away quietly and spreading negative word of mouth, but you're not even aware that there was a problem. So there is a huge tip of the iceberg issue. Uh, and we also find that, uh, and this is very surprising in a business to business environment, we find that the companies that are selling to other businesses say, well, the guy's giving me $100,000 a month. Naturally, he'll complain if he's unhappy. In fact, we find non-complaint rates are higher in B2B environments than in B2C because, uh, yeah, that sales rep is sort of a dim bulb, but I don't want to get him in trouble. He's a nice guy. Or there's fear of retribution. We found at, at Xerox that very few people complain about their service technician because if they do, the next time it's a weekend and they really need him to show up, it's, oh, you're the one who complained about me. Sorry, can't come till Tuesday. So, Fear of retribution is a big thing. Plus, there's just a hassle factor. It's 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 a problem and a frustration, but it's not worth complaining about. So we basically find that one of the big misunderstandings most businesses have is that there's a huge iceberg of dissatisfaction out there that they're not even hearing about. Uh, another thing that we find very few companies have really analyzed is what is the cause of their attrition. 
and we find that uh, on average, about half of all attrition is due to customers having had problems. Uh, and they just, in many cases, haven't complained about it. The third thing people don't understand is what the causes of problems are. And this, again, comes back to, to the assumption that if we have an unhappy customer, it was Mary Lou, that frontline rep. What we find is marketing and sales cause 30% of all dissatisfaction by setting incorrect expectations among customers. And... We also find another 20 to 30% is caused by customers doing dumb things or failing to read the directions. And uh, one example is whenever I'm giving a speech, I always ask a, an audience of 100 people, how many of you have read your homeowner's insurance policy cover to cover? And I normally get two hands and I tell those two people to get a life, but I then suggest the other 98% have no idea of all the unpleasant surprises that are buried in there. For instance, like the valuables limitation, which basically says that if your house is destroyed by the tornado, uh, you're only covered for up to $5,000 worth of valuables. And if you have a lot of jewelry and in the South, they have lots of guns, uh, those are not going to be covered. And then when the claim is denied, it's, well, you slid that by me. Well, didn't you read your policy? Mm -hmm. Well, no, but you should have told me. So this then leads to a positive strategy, which we had one insurance company in Alabama who had a welcome letter that said, welcome to the family. There are three things people tend not to notice about their policy. The first one was the valuables limitation. And sales and marketing hated that letter. Oh, why are we rubbing their nose? We're, we're, we're telling them about this limitation. Customer reads the letter and says, oh, well, I have more than that. Can I buy a rider? Can I give you more money? Mm -hmm. So we eliminated the problem, generated more revenue. And uh, what we found was the transparency and, and being honest with the customer really is, is a delighter, but it also eliminates a whole bunch of problems. So it sounds like setting expectations early on is can actually generate revenue, which is just it, that's a little bit mind blowing because you think you don't think about that kind of thing. You don't think about telling people up front the limitations or, or issues they might have. But it sounds like that can be a real uh, differentiator. Yeah. And, and in fact, we have a concept we call psychic pizza, which is I ring your doorbell and say, here's the pizza you were about to order. And one of the first ones who did this, uh, I, I like to think we thought of it first, but that Amazon actually has been doing that for a long time in terms of they are monitoring your downloading of your movie. And if they see that you're having buffering and not a good experience, they will send you an email in advance right in the middle of the viewing experience saying, we notice you're not having a good viewing experience. We're giving you your three bucks back as opposed to another well-known internet company will say, write us a letter and in 30 days, we'll decide whether to give you your $3 back. So this idea of proactive communication really works incredibly well. Mm -hmm. in, in that vein, uh, you bring up, you know, Amazon and these larger companies that have these return policies that are just seamless. You just deal with that. Uh, is that, I guess, uh, the concept behind that, is that more delighting or is that reducing customer rage or is it trying well, to split the difference? 
it, it really is is a twofer or a threefer, depending on how you want to count it, is you're delighting the customer, you're eliminating the problem, but you're also reducing your costs at the same time because we find proactively communicating is one third as expensive as you know getting the phone call, okay, tell me your problem, let me clean up your mess now, as opposed to just helping you avoid it up front. And they, they didn't arrive at this in sort of one fell swoop. Uh, Basically, Amazon and, and Intuit and a number of these other companies have been experimenting. They do thousands of experiments and they it's A-B testing and they see what works and what doesn't work and what works better. And Jeff Bezos had a fascinating uh, paragraph in his letter to stockholders in 2018 where the header was, we are going to scale failure. And this shocked all kinds of business analysts. But what he was saying was, we're going to do a bunch of experiments and some of them are going to fail. But unless we have big failures, that means we're not taking big enough risks and we're not trying good, you know, new enough stuff that we're really going to move the needle. And so this is something, this is one reason why I think service needs to ally with quality in many cases, because quality improvement and continuous improvement is in the business of doing ongoing experimentation. And one of the most successful uh, customer experience enhancement initiatives I've seen is at Aflac, where they have customer service, quality, and customer insights are allied together continuously experimenting to improve what's going on at Aflac. So uh, when you talk about experiments and uh, quantifying this data, what does that look like? How do we measure what an experiment, whether it succeeds or fails, or uh, I guess what's, this, what's the data in these type of experiments? Okay, it's basically a straight A-B where you have you know, 10,000 people you do this to and 10,000 other people you try something else. And you then can look at how many of them have problems, how many of them contact you, how many buy, etc. And, um, and you basically compare the two outcomes and see which one works best. And so uh, it, it literally is done sort of like your, your standard college experimentation, uh, it, the scientific uh, technique, and it, it works extremely well. How would you have a, a small company do something like this? How can you help them quantify what, what the experience looks like for a customer? You know, what, like what data can we get from these kind of things on a small scale to quantify experience? Well, well actually what we have done is that we would have, uh, and we, we've done this for, for a lot of little companies where you basically have one geography or, or literally just take a hundred customers and do one thing and a hundred customers and do the other. In fact, one example was we, we had an insurance company where we had a, a hundred clients who called in asking stupid questions and and this this was on health benefits and we said you know you're a smart person but i'll bet that your office could use a tip sheet on how to avoid the 10 most prevalent problems in filling out these forms etc and so we educated a hundred companies and then we took a control group of a hundred similar companies and then we looked at them for about six months and what we found was we got 30 percent less phone calls from the educated companies 
than from the companies who had not been educated. And we got a better benefit in that the next time we did a satisfaction survey, the 100 companies who had been educated said, wow, your service has really improved. We're really satisfied with your service. And all we had done was save them from themselves by helping them prevent mistakes. It comes back again to the communication. Communicate with your end user, your customer, what the expectations are clearly, and then you can both meet in the middle and meet each other's expectations. Yeah, because there are are, uh, people who just, no one reads the directions, as I said earlier, and there are people who, who do stuff you would never dream. My favorite example is that Clorox was a client of ours, and they get not a complaint, but a helpful suggestion, and they still do they've confirmed, why don't you make Clorox taste better? The specific (laughs) suggestion is cherry flavored because people brush their teeth. It does whiten your teeth, whitens your esophagus, and I don't know what it does for your breath. Wow, yeah. But truth be known, Colgate whitening strips are are diluted sodium hypochlorite, but right out of the bottle is not a recommended use. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. So again, you can't you can't protect people, I guess, from uh, what they're going to do. So you just have to they can take that suggestion and then uh, take that to the right people in the company to make sure they set those expectations, put it on the bottle, not to drink it. Yeah, that's why you have some of the labeling you do, because uh, a lot of companies say, look, if the customer is an idiot, it's not my problem. No, it is your problem because you have to clean up the mess and you get blamed for it. Mm-hmm. And I guess you have to, uh, if you don't know the stuff is happening, if people contact you through your contact center and tell you this stuff is happening, that's one way to find out. You, you, you've, you've now highlighted the point that the voice of the customer process through the frontline employees is critically important. And while one is capturing data in your CRM system, we find that it's also very useful to have a separate channel from the frontline to the continuous improvement root cause analyst uh, that says, hey, I just had a call like this and I thought you should just be aware of it. And because the root cause analyst can very quickly pick up trends and say, ooh, we have something going on that they can take action on. And it's picked up much faster uh, by having that that feedback loop directly from the front line. And that also has another important benefit because back to the White House study and the RAGE study again, is that we, we have found that two things that customers, when they're calling, that they're looking for that aren't obvious. Uh, The two obvious things are, I want my money back and I want you to fix my problem. The two that are much more subtle is, I want an explanation of why this problem happened and I want an assurance it's not going to happen again. Now, we find most contact centers are totally ill-equipped to deal with those latter two issues. But if I, as a frontline rep, can say, well, I can't guarantee this will never happen again, but I am reporting this to continuous improvements, so it will be looked at and dealt with, that makes the customer feel like they're actually being heard. Mm -hmm. And then how do we continue that chain of communication from the frontline in the contact center to continuous improvement through management up to the C-suite? Because this information seems like it needs to be getting to the right people. Well, uh, we find that there are sort of two issues. One is the the fact that senior management in many cases uh, believes no news is good news. And and there, the, the best approach that we find is to... Uh, 
get them thinking about the last bad service experience they had. For instance, I had a CFO of a big Japanese uh, electronics company who basically said, everyone loves our product. You know, we, we don't have any complaints. And I said, well, tell me about your car dealer. And he gets this look on his face. And he says, I hate that, you know, my dealer. I won't mention the brand. And uh, I said, well, guess what? There are customers of yours that behave just the same way you do with your car dealer. Oh, and all of a sudden you can see the light go on. So getting them to understand that the tip of the iceberg is there is critically important. Then the second step is to actually quantify the issues and they have to be at a granular level. If to say we have a billing issue really is, it, that's too big. It's, it, you know, hey, take millions of dollars and we'd have to redo all the systems. And so, so that's a non-starter. But if you said we have this one particular problem that uh, on this kind of a late charge is, is creating a difficulty. Okay, that's small enough that we can do something with it. And so uh, we find that, that having granular problems at, at a doable, fixable level is what's critical. And then you get one or two or three of those fixes, and then you start building momentum. And going back to Aflac is sort of an interesting example. Uh, the service people in the contact center said, hey, we're having a lot of customers calling, asking, how do I print my invoice? And on the customer experience committee, there was the IT guy who says, oh, but you can't. All you do is you go to four clicks in to the contact us page and there's a hyperlink. Stop. Let's move that hyperlink to the front page. The number of clicks on that hyperlink went from 30,000 a month to 120,000 a month in one month. Now, what were those other 90,000 people doing previously? They were being grumpy. They were calling their agent. They were calling someone when, in fact, now that we have it right in front of them, they go to the website because 90% of the world goes to the website before they call. Oh, there it is. And it's fixed. So at basically no cost, we were able to, to enhance the satisfaction of 90,000 customers. So that's a good example, too, to, to help uh, management and the the C-suite and higher levels of companies understand that it's not always a cost. It's it's just a process improvement. There sometimes it can be as easy as a process improvement. In fact, uh, another thing when we when we do employee points of pain survey or employee frustration surveys, one of the big things we ask is is for this particular point of pain or frustration, how often does it happen, and how much time do you waste each time it occurs? Because if it's an unresponded to email, I have to go chase that person down and say, hey, I need this quote right now. Uh, or I have to go look for this data because the data on the, uh, uh, the website is stale. And what we find is that the amount of time being wasted is a big enough number that you get the finance people's attention just based on time wasted, let alone damage to employee satisfaction or damage to customer satisfaction. So there really are three ways of quantifying this. There's the impact on loyalty and word of mouth. There is the impact on the employee. And we find that, that employee frustration is one of the biggest uh, causes of employee turnover. And uh, you then also have just the flat out time wasted. So between those three different ways of quantifying it, you can get almost everybody's attention at one time or another. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, you did mention employee frustration too. How how does that, that seems like it could be a direct one-to-one issue when it comes to customer satisfaction. If you, if you call up and you get an agent who is already frustrated with their own process, that can't, that can't possibly be a good experience for the customer. Um, how can a manager look out for that kind of thing? How can, it, you know, if, if the customer's calling in and telling the company, uh, how can we make sure it, it works both ways where the agent can tell their company also? Well, we've actually uh, come up with what we call an employee frustration survey. And and we, we've written a recent article on this that can be gotten at the CCMC website uh, because there was a big article in the Wall Street Journal uh, about last October, I believe, that said throw out employee surveys because nobody pays any attention to them and they're a waste of time. And we basically said, oh, contraire, if you're asking the right questions, it's not so much as the food in the cafeteria goodness of my supervisor nice to me. It's uh, what are the barriers to success as a frontline employee? And this is really employees want to be successful and they want to get positive recognition and they want to have some control over their own life. And so if they're given the flexibility and the empowerment and the tools and given a bit of positive recognition, all of a sudden we find that turnover goes down dramatically and their effectiveness goes up. And Paul Zak wrote a very interesting article in in the Harvard Business Review entitled The Neuroscience of Trust. And he is a neuroeconomist, if you can get your head around that. But what he found was that employees who are in a flexible environment and get positive uh, reinforcement have much more oxytocin in their brain. They have less stress and they're much more productive. And we've then gone on to quantify uh, what happens when an employee checks out, when an employee has decided, I've had it here, I'm not getting paid enough to take all this crap, I'm going to leave, I'm start looking for another job. What we find is in the three months before that employee leaves, when they've already checked out, the amount of revenue damage they do can be equal to their salary in terms of the amount of money being lost. Uh, The the traditional approach of talking about employee turnover is if you lose an employee, that's 20% of their annual salary because you have to spend that time retraining a new person. It is much worse than that. It's at least three times that amount in terms of the revenue damage that they do uh, by alienating customers or failing to go the extra mile for the customer and just saying, well, I'm sorry, ma'am, that's our policy uh, because I don't care anymore. So it sounds like keeping your employees happy is just as important to the bottom line as it as keeping your customers happy. Yes. And the biggest single challenge is supervisors. And again, I'm not being negative on supervisors, but we find that most supervisors are in the sheriff mode of I have to make sure that Meg doesn't color outside the lines. And what we find is going back to my Paul Zach article, it's giving you uh, flexibility that allows you to color outside the lines and you're never going to make a big mess by doing that. We find that that works incredibly well in terms of making the employee successful and making the customer satisfied. And is that something that supervisors and management can, uh, do they want to tell their employees to do or do they want to foster giving them the ability to just do that on their own as they see it necessary? 
Exactly. That's the empowerment that's giving the flexibility and it's also doing the recognition. Hey, that was great the way you did that. And all the other employees see that. And and one thing that we've we've suggested in, in a bunch of environments is what I call a victory session. And this is one way of accomplishing several things at once. Uh, basically, every other Thursday before you open the store or you get on the phones, you go around the room and each person talks about the wackiest customer or the the uh, most challenging situation they successfully handled in the last two weeks. Now, four things happen all at once. First, I get pure recognition for a job well done, and even the lowest performer gets a 90-second applause. And that's critically important because in most environments, the bottom half of the the team gets next to no recognition ever. So here, everybody gets a round of applause. Secondly, I get a new word track. Here's how I explained the warranty to the guy and he got it. So everybody now has a new way. Third, you have reinforcement of empowerment. Uh, Well, I did this for the customer. Oh, I didn't know we were really allowed to do that uh, because people are afraid to use empowerment in many cases. And then fourth, you think the next time you're dealing with a really obnoxious customer or a challenging situation, you think, wow, this lady would be great to talk about next Thursday, but I can only talk about her if I can successfully handle her. How can I make this work? And so it gets creates the incentive for people to go the extra mile. Mm-hmm. And and literally, one company has taken those victory sessions and put them on the intranet because it it's giving people great education and it's also giving the employees this recognition of hey I'm you know now on the company intranet bragging about you know how I handled this. So that there too, that's a combination of of tools, communication, flexibility to be able to share this internally. Um, so it's a it's a management style almost to make sure that you empower people to to do this, but then enable them to to see it and find it and watch it and hear it. Yes, yes, and and that that one of the other critical things would be that you should when you're you're pushed by uh, compliance or legal saying, uh, you really shouldn't do anything in that area, is to push back and say, why? And how bad can it get if, if something goes wrong here? And, and one interesting example in terms of empowerment, we're working in a financial service environment, and the big issue was accepting third-party checks at, at the teller's uh, post. And the problem is that if I take a third-party check from someone and it bounces, we're stuck with the loss. And But this was a credit union where the tellers knew these members for 15 years. And they said, oh, Mrs. Smith, she's good for it. You know, don't, don't worry. So what we find, yeah, but, but, but legal said, oh, you can't allow the tellers to do it. Somebody has to sign off on it and the supervisor needs to study it, et cetera. Well, the, the, the members were saying, wait a minute, you know me. Why, why is this that you're not going to allow me to, to, to get cash out of this? So what I said to, to compliance and legal was, you're probably right. I'm wrong. But let's do an experiment for a month and see what happens. And so we, we allowed for, in three branches, we allowed people, to, the mem- the frontline staff, to decide which checks to accept right on the spot. Losses went down. Basically, the line moved faster. We didn't have to get approvals for all this stuff. The employees felt empowered and losses went down. So there was no damage whatsoever. And, and at which point the legal and compliance people 
didn't have a leg to stand on. So what we find is that pushback on people say, let's do an experiment. You're probably right. But, but you know, how bad can it get if we do it for a month? And then the data will show that empowerment really works. Mm hmm. So we've talked a lot about uh, that cycle of commun communication, um, gathering this data, seeing what works, what doesn't work. Um, but what would be the biggest piece of advice that you have for leaders who want to prioritize a better customer experience? Uh, well, I would I would uh, probably give, you know, three pieces of advice. First, look at how much it's costing you to win a new customer right now and compare that to, to what would be the potential payoff of uh, better service and word of mouth getting customers that way. Secondly, test the your assumption that no news is good news in terms of really going back to a sample of customers and saying, have you had any problems? And here's a list of the problems you may have had. What we find is the minute you say, have you had any problems and aid them with a list to jog their memory, and then all of a sudden uh, you're gonna turn up uh, three times as many problems. And then the third thing is to look at your uh, turnover or your, your, your customer attrition and say, why are we losing these customers? Why are these customers not coming back? And what if we cut attrition in half? How much more would our revenue year over year increase? And basically what we find is 50% of that attrition is due to service and customer experience issues that can be eliminated if you actually empower the front line, give them tools. Well, we're closing in our time here, uh, so I just wanted to see anything else you want to make sure that people know that you you wish they knew. Oh, um, let's see. I guess the uh, the last thing would be to focus, go back and focus on the setting of expectations. And uh, the, in almost every company, we find the most poorly performed function is the customer onboarding function. There is an assumption that uh, they've read the directions or they've read their contract. And I recently polled about 250 CEOs of small and medium-sized companies, and over a third of them said they were sure their clients had never read the contract. So basically what we find is the onboarding process, a la my example with the homeowner's policy of here are three things you need to know, mm -hmm. is probably the most poorly performed in most organizations because sales, the minute they get the signature, they run to the next prospect and no one is really doing the onboarding. So uh, we have a, a new article also on our website that uh, is six steps onboarding customers. And the first step is figuring out who needs to be onboarded and educated. Secondly, is motivating them to get educated. Then you do the education. But those first two steps are almost never performed by most companies. And last example is the credit union I talked about, uh, basically said to new home buyers who are clueless on the mortgage process, if you will watch this four minute video, we will give you a quarter point less on your mortgage, which sounds like a heck of a lot. And I said, wow, really? Yeah. And I said, oh, Customers who've watched this four minute video are so much easier to deal with. And we have so many less fire drills. It's more than worth it. So huh. creating the incentive to get educated is really, really important. 
So it really comes down to sharing the right information at the right time with exactly. the right people. Yes, yes. So thank you. I hope, hope this was helpful. This was fantastic information. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, we appreciate your time and sharing your wealth of expertise with our audience. That's a wrap on today's episode of Unlocking Customer Service. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Play to get notifications when new episodes drop each week. Or head to sharpencx.com slash podcast to catch up on all the latest episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review so we can reach more people like you. 